Radio Mano Papachango. decided to do uh, part two of this, uh, what makes this book great, because yesterday when I read it, by the time I got to the end, I was just tired of hearing my own voice, and uh, I'd been reading for an hour, and I felt like, you know, let's just let it go, but then, um, but then later I realized that I hadn't really unpacked the story. Um, I just sort of threw out some opinions and didn't really talk about why I feel it's so important and uh, some of the techniques that make the story so powerful. So I wanted to revisit the story a little bit today, Cat Person by Kristen Rupenian. If you haven't listened to part one of this uh, two-part episode of what makes this book great, Make sure you listen to the first one or just go online and read the story. Um, it's online. Uh, the New Yorker has made it available for free. Um, just Google cat person New Yorker and it'll come up. So I just spent a few minutes going through the first few pages, highlighting um, examples of three different things. Um Basically, uh, I highlighted some examples of what I feel are very insightful glimpses into the protagonist's personality, where she is, how how emotionally developed she is. Now, she's 20 years old, so she's in a very intermediate stage of development She's learning things about herself. She's learning things about the world. Um, so there are some uh, things I want to point out along those lines. There are other things I highlighted, which are examples of the power struggle. I think this story, to me, this story reads like um, a boxing match or a UFC fight or you know some other kind of struggle where wrestling someone's on top and then there's a reversal and then they're back on top and then they're back on their back and then they're on top and they're you know it's this it's a lot of power and then related to that but i think somewhat separate is the way that margot is not responding so much to robert as to the vision of herself that she gets in Robert's presence. I think I talked about this a little bit yesterday that sometimes we surround ourselves with people uh, who make us feel good about ourselves. Um, I think this is a, a mistake that we make, particularly when we're young and we're trying to figure out who we are. And I think Often we do it in our relationships where we are with someone, I, I'm probably repeating myself, but not for them, but for who they make us think we are. There's a a line in a Joe Henry song called Trampoline where he says, I don't miss you half as much as the man you made me think I was. I think that's the line. And I certainly did this when I was young. I think a lot of people do it. And the problem is that the person who makes us feel good about ourselves is almost, by definition, not the person who's going to enable us to grow uh, or push us to grow. Because they're the person who admires us so much the way we are, which is important and is psychologically um, a very deep need that we have. Um, but the problem is that, 
you know, if you're if you're dating, let's say you're 20 and you're dating someone who make who who thinks you're amazing, just amazing. Well, you might be amazing in some ways, but you're 20, you know? You're very there's there's no way to avoid the fact that you're only 20. You don't know a lot of what's going on. And so if somebody thinks you're just perfect the way you are, that doesn't give you much impetus to grow and question yourself and change and um, improve. Now, I'm not saying we should date people who don't like us. You know, that would be the other extreme. Um, But I do think we should be wary of You know, it, it's like famous people who end up surrounded by people telling them how great they are all the time. I was uh, talking with a guy recently, an actor. Um, I probably shouldn't say who he was, um, but he, he was talking about knowing lots of famous people. And he said, honestly, they're not that interesting um, because they are so caught up in being this famous person that they really don't have anything interesting to say. They're surrounded by people who tell them they're great all the time. Everything's done for them. Everything's easy. There's no challenge. There's no surprise. They're boring as fuck. Well, I think we do that in our own little lives, in our own sort of small scale way, when we surround ourselves with people who uh, just kiss our ass and tell us how great we are. There's no growth and we end up insulated from reality. So anyway, okay, uh, let's let's unpack this a little bit. First paragraph, Margot met Robert on a Wednesday night toward the end of her fall semester. Okay, um, so nondescript, it was a Wednesday, the end of fall semester. She's in college. We know that. She's working behind the concession stand at the artsy movie theater downtown when he came in and bought a large popcorn and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Now, she sort of engages with him, giving him a hard time. She says, that's an dot, 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 unusual choice. She said, I don't think I've ever actually sold a box of red vines before. So right off the bat, she's giving him a hard time, right? She's flirting with him, but in a way that is that sort of semi-confrontational, um, you know, that way of flirting that is a light insult. Um, you know, what Neil Strauss in the pickup community called negging. Uh, so it sort of puts the person on their heels. They're not sure if you're insulting them or, or playing with them. Uh, I remember, when I was in first grade, this girl decided she liked me. And so she and her two friends chased me around the playground, like kicking me or pulling my hair. I don't remember what. But the whole thing was like, she likes me, so she's attacking me. Uh-huh. I guess that's how this works. Um, and then there's this this paragraph that I think is really interesting. I'll read the whole thing and then talk about it. Flirting with her customers was a habit she'd picked up back when she worked as a barista, and it helped with tips. Okay, first sentence. We now have reason to question her sincerity. We see that she's manipulative. We we see that she doesn't mind playing with other people in order to extract something she wants from them. Okay, one sentence. Next sentence, she didn't earn tips at the movie theater, but the job was boring otherwise, and she did think that Robert was cute. Okay, not so cute that she would have, say, gone up to him at a party, but cute enough that she could have drummed up an imaginary crush on him if he'd sat across from her during a dull class. Again, look at how self centered this is. This is all about her. It's not about him, right? So she's flirting with him because it's a habit she'd picked up when she was trying to squeeze money out of people at the coffee shop. Um, She didn't earn money here, but the job was boring. So she's doing it to amuse herself. She thinks he's cute. Well, not really cute, but cute enough for her to play with him. 
Uh, not so cute that she would have gone up to him at a party because that would have given him power. That would have expressed some sort of vulnerability. That would have risked rejection. So he's not that cute. But he's cute enough that she could have drummed up an imaginary crush on him. Imaginary. If she sat across from him from her during a dull class. So she's saying, yeah, he's not really cute enough. I would bother with him. But yeah, I mean, if I'm bored, I could sort of convince myself I was into him in an imaginary sort of way just to get me through this boring ass class. So again, I'm not judging Margot. I don't mean to be putting her down. She's 20. And, you know, I was certainly no better than this when I was 20. But I do want to point out how deeply self-centered this young woman is and how the story that we're reading is taking place in two different worlds, the well, three different worlds, really. The world, the physical world that's being described the world inside Margot's head and the world inside Robert's head. And I think this is always the case in relationships. There's your story, there's my story, and there's the story. So let's continue. He was tall, which she liked, and she could see the edge of a tattoo peeking out from beneath the rolled up sleeve of his shirt. Okay, so she's imagining... Okay, I look okay with this guy. He's tall. He's got the tattoo. He might be my kind of dude. Um, but he was on the heavy side. His beard was a little too long. And his shoulders slumped forward slightly as though he were protecting something. So what's being protected when your shoulders are slumped forward? Your heart. Okay, that paragraph to me... Uh, the whole story is right there in that paragraph, right? That's the whole story. It tells us who she is, tells us what kind of person she is, tells us that Robert is vulnerable. He's awkward. He's not real comfortable in his body and he's carrying a wound. Now, Robert, this here we start the um, the struggle, the power struggle, right? So she's flirting with him, eh, not really seriously, just to amuse herself. Robert did not pick up on her flirtation, or if he did, he showed it only by stepping back, as though to make her lean toward him, try a little harder. So again, the narrator doesn't see into Robert's mind the narrator is supposing Robert's motivation. Uh, the narrator does see into Margot's mind. Um, so we don't know if that's really, if Robert just didn't pick up on it or if Robert was playing a little power move on her. Well, he said, okay then. So he's confused. What's going on? He pocketed his change. Beautiful little detail. He pocketed his change. Now, we already know that there's no tip jar here, right? We already know that she doesn't earn tips at the movie theater. But pointing out that he pocketed his change reinforces the idea that he wasn't giving her a tip. So I'm keeping this. Little power move? Maybe. We don't know if it's a power move, but we think... We're being led by the narrator to believe that she thinks it's a power move. Okay, next week he goes to the theater again. He buys another box of red vines and he says to her, you're getting better at your job. You managed not to insult me this time. So he's probably been thinking of this line, right? How to sort of jab back at her a little bit in a friendly way. Um, and then he asks for her number and surprising herself she gives it to him okay from that small exchange over the next several weeks they build up an elaborate scaffolding of jokes by way of tax riffs and blah 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 scaffolding jumped out at me what a great word there scaffolding because what is a scaffolding first of all scaffolding is temporary 
Scaffolding is the structure that you build in order, it's the temporary structure you build in order to build something more permanent. But they're not really building anything permanent. They just build this scaffolding, this flimsy, temporary structure of jokes and, and little text back and forth. Um, so that's a very interesting word, I think, there. Uh, she had to work hard to impress him. Soon she noticed that when she texted him, he usually texted her back right away. But if she took more than a few hours to respond, his next message would always be short and wouldn't include a question. So it was up to her to reinitiate the conversation, which she always did. Okay, again, power, right? According to this depiction of events, what Robert's doing is like if she takes too long, a couple hours to answer his text, then his response will be short thereby forcing her to keep it going. Power. Partly power, but also partly, perhaps, um, self-protection, right? If she's losing interest, then he wants to protect himself and let her lose interest without it being a massive rejection, right? Without it hurting too much. He's got those slump shoulders protecting his heart for a reason. Uh, we're led to believe Robert's been hurt. And so if she starts to fade out a little bit, then he fades out a little bit. But she always keeps the conversation going. So we could look at that as a power trip on Robert's part, or we could look at that as self-protection. Often it's the same, right? Um. Okay, then Margot goes home and they keep texting. And then when she comes back, it takes a little while before Robert can see her. Uh, the line is that uh, he turned out to be surprisingly hard to pin down. Sorry, busy week at work. I promise I'll see you soon. And then there's this line. Margot didn't like this. It felt as if the dynamic had shifted out of her favor. Again, power, consciousness of power. So then they go on their date. And of course, the first thing she starts thinking about is he can take her someplace and rape and murder her. Power, vulnerability. And then he says, don't worry, I'm not going to murder you. Oh, it's okay. You can murder me if you want. Power, power, power. Always struggle. Who's in charge here? Who's got the power? Who's got the control? During the movie, he didn't hold her hand or put his arm around her. So by the time they were back in the parking lot, she was pretty sure he had changed his mind about liking her. Again, she thinks she's losing power now, right? She doesn't like the shifting dynamic. Why doesn't he like me? Why isn't he trying to kiss me? Why isn't he doing this and that? And then there's this thing about the, the clothes she was wearing and uh, how he may have been insulted that she didn't dress up. She was dressed so casually. So then there's this this great exchange in the parking lot, right? And and this moment happens in every date, right? Where you're trying to figure out, okay, like, should this go forward? Or am I not into this? Is she not into this? Is he not into this? What's going on here? And it's always this meta, meta interior dialogue, because on the one hand, you're thinking, am I into this? But on the other hand, you're thinking, <laughs> separate from that question is the question of, are the are they into this? And I want them to be into this whether I am or not, right? Like, even if I'm not into it, I want her to be into it. And because then I have the right, I have the power to decide whether it goes, goes forward or not. So this, this exchange is so great and, and really teases out all these interior monologues that are happening. Um, so do you want to get a drink? He asked when they got back to the car as if being polite were an obligation that had been imposed upon him, right? That's how she hears it. So when he says, do you want to get a drink? What she hears is, I'm done with you, girl. I'm not really into you, um, but I feel like I have to invite you to a drink because we just saw this movie, even though I'm totally not into this anymore. But all right, uh, so do you want to get a drink? It seemed obvious to Margot that he was expecting her to say no and that when she did, they wouldn't talk again. So that's how she sees it. She's reading this as like, 
he's going through the the motions of asking me to have a drink because he knows I'm going to say no, and then that'll be the end of it. That made her sad. Not so much because she wanted to continue spending time with him, <laughs> right? This is my point. She's. It's not about does she want to continue being with him. It's about how she wants to be seen by him. Um, so that made her sad, not so much because she wanted to continue spending time with him as because she'd had such high expectations for him over break. And it didn't seem fair that things had fallen apart so quickly. Didn't seem fair. So now she's feeling a bit victimized by the situation. Um, we could get a drink, I guess, she said. If you want, he said. If you want was such an unpleasant response that she sat silently in the car until he poked her leg and said, what are you sulking about? So there it is again. Power, right? It seems like neither one of them really wants to continue this relationship, but she wants him to want to continue the relationship. I'm not sulking, she said. I'm just a little tired. I can take you home. No, I could use a drink after that movie. And then it's the whole thing about how she made fun of him for choosing the Holocaust movie, how inappropriate it was as a first date, etc., etc. Uh, and maybe he was trying to impress her with this, you know, serious movie because he thought she was into serious movies because she worked at the fancy movie place. Um, anyway, so back and forth, back and forth. And then she gets uh, carded when they go to the bar and um, she starts, he, he's like uh, kind of looking at her funny, like, wait a minute, I thought you said you were older, you're only 20, like, why don't you tell me what's going on? Then she starts crying and uh, then she says, from the way he was gazing at her, in his eyes, she could see how pretty she looked, smiling through her tears in the chalky glow of the streetlight with a few flakes of snow coming down. So again, here she is. She's, she's viewing herself through his eyes. Now, you might feel, um, particularly if you're a young woman listening to me, that I'm being unfair to her and um, that I'm sort of attributing all this, all these motivations and these hidden agendas to her uh, in an unbalanced way. And I agree with you, um, but I would say that's the way the story's written, right? We don't know what Robert's seeing. We don't know how he's viewing these exchanges um, because of the way the author set up the narrator to give us insights into her mind, but not into his. Um, so I don't mean to be painting this as being totally her fault, um, or or focusing overly much on her motivations and her lack of psychological development or so on. It's just that that's the way this story is written. It invites us to, you know, be much more, have much more of a view into her particular experience than his. Um you know, and then he gives her that kiss. It was a terrible kiss, shockingly bad. Margot had trouble believing a grown man could possibly be so bad at kissing. It seemed so awful, yet somehow it also gave her that tender feeling toward him again, the sense that even though he was older than her, she knew something he didn't. So again, here's the power again and again. So even the the bad kiss, which, you know, in many cases you would say well if someone kisses that bad then like I don't really want to you know go further with them I don't want to I don't certainly don't want to fuck them especially if they fuck the way they kiss which later in the story she assumes he does um but it's the very fact that he's not good at it is what attracts her but it doesn't attract her to him it attracts her to the fact that she knows something he doesn't. It attracts her to her own superiority, her own feeling of superiority. 
Um, so then they go to the a different bar, and um, she sort of rethinks the whole thing about you know asking to go to the commercial cinema rather than the one she worked at, and she realizes that maybe he was hurt by that because he thought that she didn't want. Um, to run into people she worked with, uh, with him and have to explain things or be seen with him or whatever. And then there's this line. She was starting to think that she understood him, how sensitive he was, how easily he could be wounded. And that made her feel closer to him and also powerful because once she knew how to hurt him, she also knew how he could be soothed. Again, Ah, I see how this guy works. I can hurt him. I can also make him feel better. Therefore, I can control him. And then, uh, and then she she does that a little bit. She plays with that, and then that paragraph ends with this line: "She felt as if she were petting a large, skittish animal, like a horse or a bear." skillfully coaxing it to eat from her hand. Power. Understanding. Manipulation. Right? I can control this person. I can control this large, potentially dangerous animal. I can make it trust me. I can harness its energy. That's why I say, you know, to me, I've said it a million times already, but this story is so much about power. Um, and then, okay, by her third beer, she was thinking about what it was, would be like to have sex with Robert. Probably it would be like that bad kiss, clumsy and excessive. And here we go. But imagining how excited he would be. He would be, not her. She's not into it. She's not for her own pleasure for her own. She's not attracted to him necessarily. She doesn't think he's going to be good in bed, but she's imagining how excited he would be, how hungry and eager to impress her. She felt a twinge of desire pluck at her belly as distinct and painful as the snap of an elastic band against her skin. So what is her desire for? It's not for him. It's for his eagerness to impress her. It's for his hunger. It's for his excitement. It's that she wants to see herself in his eyes. That's what she's attracted to. Not him. And then when she suggests they should get out of here, and at first he's disappointed because he thinks, oh, this is over. And then he picks up that she's saying, oh, let's go fuck somewhere. And uh, there's this great line, the obedient way he trailed her out of the bar gave her that elastic band snap again, as did, oddly, the fact that his palm was slick beneath hers. So, power. He's obedient. He trails her out of the bar. Yes, ma'am. He walks right out behind her, and his hands, his palm is sweaty. He's nervous. She feels power. And then she pushes her body against his in the car, or I guess in the parking lot, feeling tiny beside him. So she's feeling this, her own physical uh, weakness or her smallness beside him. And he lets out a great shuddering sigh as if she were something too bright and painful to look at. And that was sexy too, being made to feel like a kind of irresistible temptation power. She's irresistible. She's got the power. And then the whole exchange in the car where <clears throat> she basically invites herself to his house. She says, can I come over? And he says, you can. And then they go to the house. Okay. So I'm not going to go through the whole story like this, but I did want to sort of um, just show you uh, how how intentionally the author is showing um, these exchanges and how um, 
Margot has this narrative happening in her head about what's happening and how misaligned it is with what Robert is experiencing. Even though, as I said, we don't see into Robert's experience to anywhere near this depth, um, Ruponian does a really good job in in showing that whatever he's experiencing, it isn't what Margot's experiencing because there's no way for him to know what she's experiencing because she's not expressing these things outwardly. What she's saying outwardly is different from what she's experiencing inwardly. So you get this disconnect between the two of them where both of them probably thinks they are experiencing more or less what's happening, but they're very disconnected. Um, and then you have this this last heartbreaking scene where, you know, she's on her bed with Tamara, her roommate, who texted him that just leave me alone, stop texting me. Um, and he was like, okay, I'm sorry. I won't, you know, whatever. And, and he acted very gentlemanly and kindly and with compassion. Um, and then he sees her in the bar. Now, obviously he went to that bar probably because she mentioned that that's where she hangs out and he wanted to run into her. But, you know, they had that stage, that whole weird thing at the bar where, you know, they rushed her out like she was, uh, you know, a, a dignitary with the Secret Service. And I thought there was an interesting line, too. Um, you know, she sees him and she tells this guy, Albert, oh, my God, that's him, the guy from the movie theater. And then there's this line, by then, Albert had heard a version of the story, a version of of the story, right? What we're hearing is a version of the story. What Margot's experiencing in her own mind is a version of the story, right? That's all there are, is versions of stories. There is no truth. There is no true story. There's a great film called Rashomon by uh, Kurosawa, the Japanese director, which really makes this point. There's a, an event that takes place, and then he um, sort of shows how that event is experienced by each of the different characters that are involved. And each of them has a different experience of that event. Um, anyway, so the line is Albert had heard a version of the story, though not quite the true one. Hmm. So the premise here is that there is a true version of the story. I'd love to know what that is nearly all her friends had. Um, they, so they rush her out of the bar. Uh, it was also over the top that she wondered if she was acting like a mean girl. But at the same time, she truly did feel sick and scared. What do you think she was scared of? Him sitting in the corner by himself? Or that she might see herself as she truly was? She might see how mean she was, how cruel she was, how childish she was, the pain that she's causing. And then, curled up on her bed with Tamara that night, the glow of the phone like a campfire illuminating their faces, Margot read the messages as they arrived. Why a campfire? What do we experience with a campfire? We experience warmth, comfort. So is his attention giving her warmth? Are she and her roommate experiencing some sort of bonding there together as they watch this guy melt down? Are they experiencing incipient power? I mean, I said this yesterday that, that I think when we talk about power dynamics, um, we often disempower the woman uh, because in the cases that we're talking about, it's generally an older man and a younger woman. And we say, oh, look at that. The man has all the power. The woman wouldn't want to be with 
him if he weren't the president of the company or if he didn't have lots of money or he weren't famous or whatever. Uh, totally negating the idea that, well, maybe there's something that a young woman can learn from an older man. Maybe uh, there's an intellectual richness, an emotional richness, you know, like in every other realm of our lives, we say young people should learn from older people, right? That's what we do. We have professors and students, um, except for some reason in relationships and sexuality, that's considered some sort of a weird taboo. It's creepy. It's uh, It can't possibly be a real attraction. It's got to be exploitative in at least one direction, maybe in both. But I'll tell you, some of the most powerful people I've ever known in my life have been girls and women. And some of the cruelest, um, and not cruel, not wantonly cruel, I think, but cruel because they don't realize how much power they have. They don't realize how deeply they can hurt someone with a glance or a frown or a rejection. Um, and I think that's what the campfire is, that these are little girls learning. They're learning to be women. They're getting a glimpse at how much power they have, power to hurt. Okay, and then there's, it's just this, this series of texts that Robert sends to Margot. And what we see is the entire power dynamic, the power struggle that has existed between them from the beginning. The, we see the scaffolding falling apart. So he starts off, Hi, Margo, I saw you out at the bar tonight. I know you said not to text you, but I just wanted to say you looked really pretty. I hope you're doing well. Okay, so kind of like, hmm, maybe, maybe there's a connection there. Maybe she wants to pursue this a little more, or at least I can get some sense of what happened. Um... And also it's interesting that the way the rejection happened was they had sex and then she's like, yeah, I'm done. I got what I needed from this guy. I got his attention, but I'm not doing that again. And then we have that whole amazing thing about her imagining her boyfriend in the future and she's going to tell him this story and they're going to laugh about it. Um, you know, reinforcing the idea that she's experiencing this in so much about herself, even her future self, and not really connecting with this guy there. It's interesting because it, it kind of flips the dynamic. I know that a lot of women have experienced this, maybe almost all women have experienced this, where you know, you meet a guy and it seems cool and he's into it, and then you have sex and then he doesn't call right? He ghosts you or he makes up some lame ass excuse. And then you're, you're left for the rest of your life trying to figure out what happened, why. And I've known a lot of women who have been very, very wounded by that. Um, they don't know why. And in some cases there may not even be a why the guy just wanted, he was just drunk and wanted to have sex and so he did, but he didn't want to have a relationship or he already has a relationship or, um, you know, he's not into it when he's not drunk or he just wants someone new all the time or whatever his particular motivation is. So this story, you know, getting back to what I said earlier about how I hope you don't feel that I'm being unfair to her because this story could easily have been flipped and we could be inside the guy's head. And we could be seeing what's motivating him and how blind he is to the woman that he's interacting with and how cruel he is and how um, his fantasy life is so much more immediate in his experience than the actual interaction that he's having with this human being that he's with. So please accept my apologies if it sounds like I'm really coming down on her because... As I said, this could be 
absolutely flipped 180 degrees, turned inside out and be the same story, basically. Anyway, so that's his first line. I saw you at the bar. He acknowledges, you know, I know you said not to text you, but I just want to say you're pretty. I hope you're doing well. And then I know I shouldn't say this, but I really miss you. Okay. Expression of vulnerability. Hey, maybe I don't have the right to ask, but I just wish you'd tell me what it is I did wrong. Now that's a legitimate thing to ask for, right? What happened? Why? Why? That's a fair question. I felt like we had a real connection. Did you not feel that way? Or so he's trying to figure out what happened? Why? What? I thought there was something there. We were joking. We made each other laugh. We, we had fun, right? Didn't we? Maybe I was too old for you, or maybe you like someone else. You know, I thought it was interesting that neither of them knew how old the other was. And that was brought up in the course of the story as sort of a small detail. But they both, she thought he was in his mid-20s. He was 10 years older than that. And he thought she was over 21. Um, is that guy you were with tonight your boyfriend? And now it turns nasty. Or is he just some guy you are fucking? In other words, he's saying, yeah, the way you just fucked me, even though you didn't really care about me. And then he feels, oh, maybe I went too far there. So then he says, sorry. And then I should say that in the text, if you read this story, a lot of these um, texts are misspelled. Very clever uh, and interesting aspect of this writing that you're not getting in listening to me because I'm not stopping to point out all the misspellings. Um, but she really integrates texting into the story. And in this particular case, the misspelling indicates that maybe he's had a few drinks. Remember, there's that bottle of whiskey in his room. Um, Anyway, he says, when you laughed, when I asked if you were a virgin, was it because you'd fuck so many guys? See, now this is where it's coming out, what he's been thinking in the week since that happened. He's been thinking, why did she fuck me and then take off and ghost me? What did I do wrong? I thought she was so sweet and innocent and... I was afraid she was even a virgin, but man, she laughed when I said that. And then she fucked me and she just disappeared. Like maybe she just, maybe she just fucks dudes for fun and is heartless. And then he says, are you fucking that guy right now? Are you, are you, are you? So vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerable desperate and then that desperation pivots into anger as desperation often does now he says answer me whore so I, I guess my point about this why is it called cat person right It's only hinted at, um, but they have this whole thing about this in their texting when she goes away for the holidays. They have this whole thing about how her cat, when she was a kid, is texting his two cats and the cat is jealous about their relationship. So she's nice to one and she's mean to the other. So I think the author is sort of setting that up as a way of, of reinforcing this idea of... Um, you know, the bifurcated self that Margot has, the, the part that's dealing with the guy in a way that seems sweet and giving to him, but is actually all for her own purposes. Um, 
You know, and then there's this weird thing where he sort of says as a warning before they go to the house, you know, I have cats. And she's like, yeah, don't you remember? We, you know, we texted about them. And then later she's wondering, like, does he even really have cats? Or like, I didn't see the cats. Are they, was he lying about that? So again, it's this sense of like, people are interacting with each other and they're not communicating even on the most basic level where, you know, she's actually wondering if he's going to murder her or she's actually wondering if he really has cats. And, you know, the whole, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that this story is so good at getting at the, not only the incomprehensibility of knowing what's going on inside someone else's head, but the poverty of our communication and how that poverty is reinforced by technology, such as texting. Um, okay, I am done with this. I hope that's been helpful. Uh, I felt like, as I said, I felt like I sort of left it in midstream yesterday. So I wanted to come back and talk a little bit more about why I think this is a really powerful piece of writing that uh, captures something that's very much an issue at the moment where people are dating through their phones and swiping and um, playing all these weird head games with themselves and with each other and it becomes very, very hard to connect to another human being um, because of all the underbrush that you need to cut through to get anywhere. I am going to play you out with a song called Mean Flower by Joe Henry. I hope your isolation is not too isolating and that you're feeling... Um, enriched by some of the things that you have an opportunity to do now that maybe back in normal life you didn't have a chance to do, like read stories and listen to podcasts and maybe have conversations with people in your life that go way deeper than they used to. Talk to you soon.
Living was somehow its own 